the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal Consultant with Future Fuel Strategies, and with me today is my very good friend and colleague, Nigel Clark. Nigel Clark, as many of you listening uh, will know, had a long and has a long and distinguished career in academics with West Virginia University, and he is now an expert consultant in the area of fuel and emissions. Nigel, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tammy. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you and a pleasure to work with you. So today, we are going to talk about a study that Nigel and myself and our good colleagues, David McCain and Terry Higgins, just completed the study is called The Effects of Ethanol Blends on Light-Duty Vehicle Emissions, a Critical Review. And Nigel was actually the lead author in this study. So, Nigel, I'm going to get right into the questioning here. For those who are not familiar, can you talk about what this study is really about and what are the, the key findings? Tammy, maybe first a little bit of history that that many of the listeners will know is that uh, the blending of ethanol into gasoline has a very, very long history, but it wasn't until there was concern over uh, MTBE in gasoline that there was the uh, search for another oxygenate and ethanol really emerged as being uh, a major part of our national gasoline supply. Right now, ethanol represents about 10% of our gasoline. And of course, you might immediately think that's because it's blended at 10%. Well, a great deal of it is. There's also still some so-called E0 with no ethanol. And of course, there's some very high blends like E85 where the ethanol's in, in uh, a greater quantity than in the gasoline. But since this has happened on a national scale, there has been a strong interest in what the effect of ethanol is in these blends that we're using every day on the exhaust of light-duty vehicles, both light-duty trucks, which, as we know, are, are really plentiful. They're half the fleet. And automobiles. So the intent here was really to go back and mine all the existing studies, see if there were any coherent themes. We already knew at the onset there were some differences between studies to clarify those and also to look at studies that were starting to address mid-level blends like E15 and E20. So what, from your perspective, what, if anything, surprised you the most about working on this study? I think at the highest level, because unless you really parse this out in detail, you you might not recognize it, but at the highest level, just how different each of the major studies was. Yeah, I agree. Yes. I mean, there are some fairly obvious ones, like the studies were conducted at, uh, on different model year vehicles. But of mm-hmm. course, we have pretty profound emissions differences 
if you look at the standards and how they've changed in the last 15, 16 years, it's substantial. So really, we have some studies looking at very different vehicles than others. There wasn't general agreement on the best test cycle to use. And I must say that's always problematic because Mm -hmm. real-world use of vehicles varies so much by region, by length of commute, and so on. And then we actually had the studies themselves, how they blended the fuels, the statistical approach, how they chose to describe these fuels. And in Mm -hmm. a couple of cases, whether they were match blending to match properties or splash blending, where simply they are adding ethanol directly to gasoline and comparing it to that gasoline. So I can think of many more, but I think the main impact for me was just how different each study is. And consequently, the difficulty of drawing any conclusive conclusion, if I can use that term, uh, that that really uh, met with the results of all of those studies. So can you talk a little bit more about splash blending versus match blending? I mean, especially when it comes to the variability that we found as we started to I think especially you and I, because I think we were the diggers, so to speak, you know, sort of dig, finding and digging and digging through these studies and trying to, you know, sort of look at them more deeply and compare and, and so on and so forth. So it, can you talk a little bit more about those dynamics of, of flash blending versus match blending when it comes to looking at some of these studies? Let me just start very, very briefly mentioning some of the work that that Terry Higgins did from the refining perspective. To summarize, the gasoline that we get is a blend of product streams from refineries. And these product streams are coming from really quite diverse units on the refineries, like reformers and fluid cat crackers, You know, one's blending in alkylate, one's blending in some some straight-run naphtha and so on. And these things are all blended together to form a gasoline that basically meets spec, meets ASTM spec at the pump. But it's also blended in a way that the refinery is really meeting spec with its least valuable products. You know, they are producing lots of other products. And so they are looking at overall refinery economics. So in the real world, what would happen is if a refinery were selling an E-zero with no ethanol, uh, and and there's not that much being prepared in that way, that that E-zero would have to meet spec. When they end up blending in ethanol, well, actually, the refiners don't blend it. It's blended downstream or at the refinery gates, but the refiners end up producing something called a BOB, a blend stock for oxygenate blending, that mm-hmm. has different properties than the E0, so that when the ethanol is added to produce E10 or E15, the whole fuel with the ethanol is within the ASTM spec. So there's sort of a preamble. 
So if you splash blend, you are really just adding the ethanol to a gasoline that's already saleable. And I need to be quite careful here because the resulting product is probably also quite saleable and within ASTM spec. But there are a couple of things like the uh, anti-knock index, the RON and MON, are actually improved by the ethanol. And to some extent, the refiner would be giving a little RON and MON away for nothing, which is not something that, that would normally happen. On the other hand, if you look at splash blending, say, E10 to produce E15, you're probably not giving very much RON or MON away. So the splash blending idea is that we're going to do a study by taking a gasoline. We are going to add ethanol to it in some quantity. We are going to run some vehicles on both the E0 and the fuel with the ethanol. It might be an E10, and we're going to compare the emissions. When we get into match blending, it's a different story. And actually, there isn't a rule at all for match blending. The match blending studies have normally decided that there are some other factors that they would like to keep constant between the baseline fuel and the ethanol blend. And these might, in some cases, be Ron and Mon. They might be the amount of aromatic percentage aromatic in the fuel. Mm -hmm. They may be read vapor pressure, for example, and they may be some distillation temperatures, T50 being a favorite that, that is used. But the concern that certainly I have and some, some share this concern with me is that a few descriptors don't necessarily define the blend or the gasoline very well. And in addition, one has to be careful if one is going to use these data to, for real-world comparison, because in the real world, an ethanol blend may not necessarily look like an E0 blend that, that's right next to it. So once again, to summarize, the splash blending is just a mix, and the match blending is where intentionally some other properties have held constant between the E0 and the E10 and I'm, or the E15. And I'm sorry to be so long-winded there, Tammy. No, no problem. No problem. Now that we sort of know just a little bit about, from your perspective, the findings, splash versus match blended, you know, the studies out there, anyone can download it. In fact, for those listening, you can access and download it on my site, which is futurefuelstrategies.com. Or, of course, you can always email me at Tammy at futurefuelstrategies.com, and I'll make sure to get you a copy if you can't find it easily. But now that we know a little bit about the study and some of the, the key findings and so forth, so, you know, it's kind of like, okay, and now what? <laughs> so what is, I guess, the question I want to ask is, you know, what are the implications of, you know, what we found from your perspective doing this study? And I guess part two of the question is, what does this mean or what could this mean 
from a policy perspective? I think there are a couple of big conclusions and won't get into all the details, but the fact that the studies differ so much, as we said, means that you can't really reach a summary conclusion that will cover all of them. Another big piece is that the emissions on these modern cars are very low. In fact, once the car has been warmed up after a cold start phase, the emissions are, from a a 70s or 80s perspective, the emissions are near zero. It's evident from these studies where they've compared ethanol blends to the fuel that the influence of ethanol on the emissions, whether these are good blends or bad blends being compared, are fairly small. And so it is remarkably difficult statistically to say that ethanol is causing substantive change in the the emissions. So really, if, if, if there's a desire to bore into this more and perhaps to look at E15 with E10 now being the norm, there really is no way other than to tackle this again with some kind of study or perhaps to say the differences are sufficiently small that they aren't of concern. Now, I will add here from a technical perspective that we're also starting to see a pretty rapid evolution within the gasoline direct injection engines. They've been evolving in controls. They've been getting better catalysts. They've been producing higher PM in many cases than the port-injected vehicles. But that's being addressed, and that's now driving technology change. So even the most recent studies are looking at technology that's now a few years old. As far as policy goes, there is something a little bit in the favor of the policy with the older studies, and that is that the U.S. fleet is actually 11 years old on average, which means there are some very old vehicles out there in the tail still on the road. But the issue is that you really somehow have to take this whole ensemble of vehicles and try and apply adjustment factors to it if you want to say that there's any effect of this ethanol. The other thing that you really have to do is observe that all of these vehicles are not driving around the nation on experimental fuels. We really need to make sure that if we do modeling or if we use data, that they are properly representative of the in-use fuels. And a big example here is that as ethanol goes up, aromatics generally go down in a fuel because Mm -hmm. the refinery ultimately wants to market to a certain octane nut rating. We have to take into account when we do this that if ethanol changes in one way, the presence of the ethanol is going to make people change the aromatic content, and the aromatic content in turn is going to change it in another way. So I, I you know, I don't want to add confusion, but ethanol and aromatics are very nonlinear in their blend behavior, and it will take quite a it's gonna take people who are skilled in the art to appreciate exactly how these emissions are uh, are in fact going to change. So I think policy-wise, this will require a very careful look 
in the next couple of years, both because we have an aging fleet that has some really cutting-edge technology and old technology mixed, and because we don't have any data on that cutting-edge technology, and because we don't necessarily have a reliable set of data on fuels that exactly represent pump fuels that are for sale. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, as uh, maybe uh, more of the, the policy and market person on the team, I think that's what, as we, as we dug into these studies, I think that's what really surprised me. It's like, oh, well, this doesn't look like <laughs> what's out there <laughs> at all. But maybe that was appropriate for some of these studies, you know, the, the various, those various approaches. But I think it's, what's interesting is that, you know, but they're not real world, but real world has kind of become like the overused phrase, like value added, you know, everything has to be mm-hmm. real. Everything's real world now. We have real world emissions and we have, you know, real world emissions testing in Europe and we have real world test cycles, you know, now we need the real world fuel. We didn't really, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but those terms weren't thrown around, you know, five, 10 years ago. You know, no one was really, really talking about that. And now it's kind of, it's kind of all the, all the rage, uh, if you will. And of course, it, it's a huge nuisance to us as a large nation, right? Because you look at running a car in Montana at Christmas, and you look at running a car in Phoenix on the 4th of July, and you know, there's some temperature differences here as well. So, yeah. And you just look at driving in New York City and driving in Phoenix, and now you've added on to this the variability of fuel. It's, it's a really complex palette to try and predict. Yeah, I mean, and there's also, you write the behavior aspect too, which is absolutely not part of the study, but, you know, people drive differently as well. I may drive differently than you, and that will have its impacts. So it is, it's a really interesting world that, you know, this real world, so to, so to speak, I always thought we were living in, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe we're going into that now when it comes to, you know, fuels and vehicles and emissions. You know, I always thought that, that we were there, but maybe not. What I wanted to ask you also is, you know, you talked a little bit about the, the the policy side. What about for the international side? Because, you know, you have countries that are looking at policies or have set policies for ethanol. You have some that are importing ethanol from the United States uh, in particular. When we look at the, you know, results of this study, what are the implications for those markets in your view? I'm certainly not an expert on the international situation, but from sort of a a somewhat more technical view, Tammy, the motivations of each of these nations differ, correct? They, Mm -hmm. some of them are just economic demands. Some of them, ethanol is a really nice way to get your, uh, your anti-knock index up in, in your Mm -hmm. fuel. For others, it may be a way to look at uh, net CO2 reductions on a source-to-wheels basis. It may be seen as an emissions piece. And, of course, when we, when we speak about emissions and air quality, that's another huge complexity, depending mm-hmm. on the strength of the sun, the altitude, all sorts of things. And, of course, depending separately 
on hydrocarbons, PM and NOx, with sort of CO2, CO in the background. So I think the motivations differ for all of these nations. We also have some, some interesting cases, such as, as Brazil, where there, in fact, it isn't anhydrous. There is a percentage of water in the ethanol, and they are blending to fairly high levels. And there are a few other followers looking at hydrous ethanol as well. So I think it's really hard to characterize all of that. But certainly it is a way to deal with a, a lower-grade bob and bring it up to a higher uh, anti-knock uh, index. All right. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Nigel so much for being on the show today. It was great to have you. And if you're looking for more analysis on future fuels issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com, and sign up for my free biweekly newsletter. And if you want to learn more about the study, please join us on February 27th at 10 a.m. Eastern. Nigel, uh, myself, David McCain, and Terry Higgins will be presenting the results of the study. And if you're interested in that, please email me. We'd be happy to have you join. And of course, there's information on the website as well. So thanks again for joining. Mm